A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes, yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. In 2016, Donald Trump broke every rule in the rule book, and yet he continued to rise in the polls. Global economic shifts. And developments in technology were stripping away blue collar jobs. The rich were getting richer. The poor were getting poorer. A vast swathe of America wanted change. I don't need to remind you what happened next. Jay Trump is the president elect. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. And the first foreign politician to meet the newly elected Donald Trump, Nigel Farage. You met with Mr. Trump yesterday. At a man of 70, he's unbelievable. 2016, it's the year of political revolution. A man who's never held any public office in the UK. This is episode two of the Trump card. And it's worth saying that we recorded this before the news that Donald Trump had contracted the virus. In this installment, the Brexit Party leader and friend of the US president will be telling us how Donald Trump really conducts his politics. Starting with the day, Mr. Trump became much more than a reality TV star. Well, election night, I was actually here.、Um, In the UK? Yeah. There'd been a spectator dinner、uh, a few days before that I was at. That was funny. That was funny. Because they gave me an award, you know, Disruptor of the Year or whatever it, whatever it was, Insurgent, I can't remember.、Um, so I get this thing and I'm in, asked to say a few words. And. Theresa May was sitting in the front table, and they were all the great and the good were all there, which is why I normally refuse the invitations to go. And I said, There's been some speculation about、uh, what I'm going to do next. Well, let me tell you, I'm on the first aeroplane next Wednesday out to Washington, D.C., because I want to congratulate my friend Donald Trump on winning the presidency. Oh my God, they thought that was. Hilarious. <laughs> Theresa May giggling like a schoolgirl. Oh, isn't this man so stupid, so ridiculous, so ghastly? Because、uh, they were all convinced, of course, that Hillary was going to win. The natural order of things would have meant Hillary Clinton wins. Of course. Wins. So I wasn't there on election day, which I now, I now wish I had been, but I did go over immediately afterwards. So the result came through on the Wednesday. And, you know, the Friday he went to the White House to meet the Obamas. And Saturday he was back in. Uh, New York,、mm, Trump Tower. In Trump Tower. And we went in.、Uh, we went you, Rasim Kahatsam, Aaron, Aaron Banks, Annie Wigmore was there, and a guy called Jerry Gunster, a US political strategist who'd worked with banks quite a lot on referendum ideas in the, in the, in the United Kingdom. 
Getting into the building was difficult, though, mm. because a protest was mounting. It was building, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and we were coming into the building as it was beginning, and I was beginning to get more and more nervous. And one or two people started recognising me. So we're kind of trapped in the building. We can't leave, because there's 25,000 people protesting outside the building. And then uh, they said to me, look, you know, the man will meet you tomorrow morning. He's got some time in the diary tomorrow morning. Come and see him tomorrow morning, have a coffee, have a chat. I said, that's great, I look forward to that. I think Kellyanne Conway, you know, who'd been very much involved with that campaign, and she's still around. He's free now. Come on, let's go and see him. So we all get into the lift, and we go up to see him. And we get out of the lift, and she knocks on the door, and it's the big gold door. That's the picture that you see. I'm looking at the picture here of you outside those golden doors. Trump's got his thumb up. Shirt open. Very looking, unusual looking picture. excited. And Very, you're he just was, boring with laughter, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, well, it was just... I mean, it was great fun. The whole, the, the whole meeting was fun. You can just see in his face in that picture, he was just the happiest what guy What have I alive. done? So those doors are not lift doors. No, that, 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 the press have had that wrong for That's four the door, years. I, those are the doors. I can exclusively, on <laughs> Chopper's his... podcast, I can exclusively tell you that the press have got that wrong. That's actually the big front door to the apartment. That's his front door? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty grand. You know, I mean, it really is pretty grand. And he opens the door, and I'm standing there, and, uh, you know, he says, my God, you said I was going to win. You went around the country, you went around America saying I was going to win. And it was amazing. It was a very interesting experience, because we sat down with him for nearly an hour, which was a very long time for somebody who's got, I mean, the world was wanting to ring him and talk to him. And, and we had an hour with him. And it was, uh, it was fascinating conversation. I mean, do you know, this guy's capacity for work is astonishing. I mean, all the campaigns I've done, all the youngsters that work with me, generally men and women in their mid-20s, because we're living in this internet age and that's, you know, I need people who are very good at this stuff because I've always thought that's the future. That's where I need to be. But when they're on tour with me, they have to take days off because they can't cope with the pace that I live at. I mean, I tell you, this guy, I mean, he, he was doing five rallies a day in the last days of that campaign in 16 as a, as a guy over 70. So, you know, what we saw was somebody who very tired, clearly very tired, still a sort of slight element of slight element of shock that it's, you know, what you've gone for has actually happened. But it was, it was, it was, I mean, I must say, it it really was a privilege to meet him on that day. But he was already thinking about issue after issue after issue, what he was going to do. And I've never disclosed any of that conversation. And I'm not, I'm not going to now. Mm. But you're the first British politician to to meet him, to talk to him. First foreign person to meet him. Theresa May hadn't called him yet. No, no, no. Didn't, Didn't have the phone number. So you were in there. They didn't have the phone number. But I did, when I came back, I did put a message through to, to, to the government, the Foreign Office, to say, you know, if you'd like to have a conversation with me about the meeting, I heard nothing. I heard nothing. No attempt to engage with you. I, no attempt to engage whatsoever, which shows you that we have a government and a civil service whose dislike of me... Trumps even the national interest. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, what, he, what, what do you think about it? It's astonishing. He did, did then tweet, didn't he, uh, a month or two later, suggesting that you'd be his choice to be UK ambassador to Washington. He did. He did. Was that your request? For that no, tweet? it was not. Of course it was not. What a ridiculous thing to ask me. <laughs> um, I'd never thought of it. 
uh, but he thought it might be quite a good idea. All I can tell you is this. Had that happened, there would have been two results. One, uh, the UK government would have had direct, regular access to the White House um, and, and, and the, ability to, you know, the ability to have a broker in the middle who could speak confidentially, not spill information, but, but, but develop a proper working relationship. Whereas what happened, actually, was a couple of years into Trump, you could argue our relationship was worse mm-hmm. with America than it had been at the start of that presidency. And he forced out, um, allegedly forced out yeah. the UK And secondly, ambassador. if it had happened, I mean, you'd have been the best parties ever um, at the embassy. But that's by the way. <laughs> I, I, I like Chris. Look, you know, I'm not, I mean, for goodness sake, I am not somebody you would expect to be an ambassador. Of course not. But this was not a usual American president. And we've had now two ambassadors since Trump has been there, who cannot even have a conversation with him. So we failed to think outside the box to get the right person in? Completely and utterly. Do you feel in any way responsible for Donald Trump's election because of your campaigning out there and because of the Brexit vote? Do you think it's loaded down to you? He himself, on that day, on the Saturday, November 2016, he and many of his team felt that without Brexit, it would never have happened. It just couldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened. It was the shock around the world that opened people's minds up to the fact that things could be different. And hence Trump attracting voters who perhaps normally would say, do you know what, we can't be bothered, there's no point. That narrative became so strong that Kellyanne Conway was desperately saying, yeah, but also it's about Mr. Trump's personality, which indeed it was. But they had to correct the narrative because everybody believed it. And he kept saying it. Trump himself kept saying, you know, Brexit was what began the whole thing. So it's it's very interesting reflection, isn't it? That normally we follow every trend that comes from America, whether it's appalling junk food, um, a lot of unwatchable telly, <laughs> whatever it is, we follow America. And for once, America followed us, and I believe that to be true, yeah. I mean, I, I was wondering whether you were really important to him in 2016, and he's now had to move on because he's now trying to run run the biggest oh, country look, in the free world, look, and, and you I, slightly I, faded from view Chris, for him. I, was I'm that unfair? Not, I'm not, I, I'm, I am not bombarding him. I'm not pretending that I have the same relevance in any way at all to this election that I had in 2016. Of course not. The, the, you know, things have moved on. Of course they have. If it wasn't for COVID and the restrictions, you know, I would like to be there helping in some way. And to be honest, I spoke to his team last on Sunday. Spoke to his team on Sunday, and, and they said, "Oh, we'd love you here for a few events." And but I can't. I, I don't have a political input to put into this. In the same way, of course I don't. But but I mean, do I think the battle that's taking place here between Biden and Trump matters? You bet your life I do. Just going back to 2016, yeah, where we left off. So in those three years, you, you were going over to Washington a fair amount. How many times did I you was. go to, to I, the White I, House? I, many, many times. How many times did you pop in? Oh, several times. Several times. One of the things that really impressed me was, you know. In the, in the West Wing, in Bannon's room, up on That's the wall. Steve Bannon, the Steve strategy. Bannon, yeah. I mean, he, he was there for a bit. Um, but on, on the whiteboard were lists of all the promises they'd made to the electors and the ticks. And w- let me tell you this. One of the things that Trump has tried to do, he has tried to keep his election promises. Isn't that refreshing? Because we've been so used to politicians on both sides of the pond who just tell the electorate what they think they want to hear at election time without any intention, rather like the Tories in Britain on, on immigration numbers, or tell them what they want to hear 
and we'll get away with it again. And Trump has done his absolute damnedest to keep those promises. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the things about him that really impresses me as a politician. He didn't really have, though, a structured policy programme, did he, when he was elected the US leader? They had to try and build that list, didn't they, from speeches and things he'd oh, said? Oh, no, there were plenty of promises. No, 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 there no. There was a manifesto, was there, though, in, in that sense? No, but there were a series of pledges that had been made at, 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 at those rallies and made again and again and again. I'm talking particularly about corporate tax, uh, where America had found itself just completely high and dry, outdated compared to the rest of the world, promises about what would happen with Israel, the American embassy, and you can go on and on and on, promises about the military and spending, lots and lots of areas in which promises are made. particularly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and he... You know, as he said to me, you know, I've kept more promises than I made. Uh, so so that, that element of his presidency, I think, is quite important. You can criticise his handling of COVID, and uh, of course, and there's a big row going on at the minute that if he knew how serious it was, why didn't he tell people? Well, two schools of thought here. I mean, one is that you don't try and panic a population, because you could argue that in this country, we've panicked a population. We, we, I mean, the fear... Mm. that was in this country. Well, Boris Johnson tried not to initially, didn't he? Well, Boris he... has found it very difficult to deal with because his instincts are exactly the same as Trump's, Correct. which is not for the state to sort of impose this massive burden on people's lives. But Boris, I'm afraid in the end, has been dragged kicking and screaming into a world where we, where we might not get family Christmases and where there are going to be COVID marshals on the streets. I mean, <laughs> goodness gracious me. Just on, on his approach to the pandemic, and you were last there, of course, in Washington, but it's just before the pandemic struck. Do you think the way he's, his response has been calibrated shows a slight impatience with it? The impatience of a, of a businessman, the, the talking about quick fixes, you know, bleach, etc. Well, you, to... no, you see, again, you're doing it. And, you know, even you here at The Telegraph are falling into the trap. He did not mention bleach once. He did say. He did not he say mention then? bleach. I've seen you see, the you're right, you see, all of you, you're all the same. <laughs> all the you same. All the same. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris, but I, I've got you on this one. You know, <laughs> what did he say about injecting bleach? He talked about maybe there could be some form of disinfectant. It knocks it out in a minute. Is what he said. And actually, other scientists have said he's right. So he meant a different thing by the word he, he meant a, an inhalation. Injection inside or, or almost a cleaning, because you see it gets on the lungs and it does... And that was out loud thinking, but of course completely misinterpreted, but so misinterpreted that everyone takes it to be, he said, drink bleach. It's really interesting. He said disinfection, not bleach. And, and so, well, see, it just so he it, may have been thinking of something else. Hey, you're fake news. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my career ends, ends here. No, but of course, in a way, I'm not blaming you because that becomes the narrative. That becomes the narrative that Trump said drink bleach. And people believe it. People believe it. Because they want to believe it. Because in many cases they want to believe it, and in others it doesn't get challenged, and, 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 and that is the fault. Look, there are some massive problems, certainly in this country. Our broadcast media are so incredibly one-sided on Trump, on Brexit, on so many issues, that a lot of people don't get to hear counter-arguments. And on this particular one, it was very tough to make counter-arguments. I remember having a caller into LBC, screaming down the phone at me, how can you support a man that says drink bleach? I said, but he didn't say it. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it is where you finish up. You know? And that's the fake news. Yeah. So look, you know, Trump, what Trump has sought from the beginning is for as much money to be put into bioscience as possibly could be to find a quick solution. Now, I have to tell you, I am deeply sceptical of this quick solution. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. 
or anything like that. Far from it. I suspect that, of, uh, you know, he's talking about a vaccine before the election. Well, that's what he wants, right? Now, you can see why he wants that. Exactly. Of course. It- and there may be a vaccine before the election, but whether it works or not is a separate debate. And I just, I, I personally am deeply sceptical that we're, that we're going to have a vaccine quick. Won't they announce some form of vaccine before the election? It won't be tested properly yet. It's a chance for him to get, well, say something. But as much chance of that working as there is of Boris Johnson's moonshot and us having mass testing of 10 million a day. Not a cat's chance in hell, but we keep being told these things. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal, and it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan. And me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't represent the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal. We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts. All from different fields, but they have one thing in common. They're at the top of their game, but distinctly down to earth. The good news is I finally learned what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it. It's actually quite simple. Search for Planet Normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. You don't really know what a podcast is, do you? I am one. Look, I am one. Who needs to know what it is? I am one. Okay, shut up. You've already called me fake news, Nigel Farage, and to be honest, it's not the first time, is it, you've shown me up as a journalist. In fact, you scooped all of Fleet Street when you got Donald Trump to call you for half an hour on LBC in October last year. How did that come about? So whenever I see Trump or speak to him, he always asks me, what are you up to? What are you doing? And I explained a bit to him that I was doing radio. I then obviously explained why the Brexit party had to be born, because it was completely going off the tracks and Brexit wasn't going to happen. But I remember it was in June of um, 2019 when he was in London. It was kind of the state visit. And he was thrilled about how the European elections had gone. Very, very pleased with what we'd done. Uh, Thought I'd done a great job. Great job, great job. Um, you, you won them, you know. And, yeah, that's you right. start a party and in and, and, and 12 and, weeks you won the election. And he realised that he realised that Boris then obviously would win because that was, the, that was the logical result of what had happened. And I talked to him then about the radio show that I was doing and he said, yeah, no, sure, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. My LBC producer was pretty persistent and kept at it and it happened. And, of course, it's the usual thing, you know, they agree. The press office agree he'll do eight minutes and he does half an hour. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was great. And he was so himself... Uh, and he was, he was, as he always is, very, very frank in the interview, said things he hadn't said before mm-hmm. about, you know, the Democrats and how he thought their campaign would shape up. Uh, and it was really, really interesting. But I mean, some would say, well, you know, how, how do you how do you do an interview with someone that you're friendly with? But if you actually look at the questions I asked, you know, I asked all the tough questions about, you know, Sekoulis and, and, and the horrible death that had happened and should she be extradited and all of those different things. So I would, I would hope that people would credit me and say that I did ask the right questions. Were you nervous about the interview? I mean, no. you've grown into this idea no. of being interviewer, haven't you? I, to be honest, no, I wasn't nervous at all. It, interviewing, is, I mean, Chris, you do lots of it. You know, there are two very distinct types of interviewing. You know, one is the gotcha approach to interviewing, which I think the public are bored to death with. The other is you do an interview 
to allow someone to explain their position. And you can then, for weeks to come, analyze it, question it, talk about it. But the whole point of an interview is to get, is to, is to get people to say something that is interesting, to say something that is frank and honest. And as I say, he just, you know, you get him talking or something like that. He just keeps on talking. During the interview, he described you as his friend. And then talked about how Boris and he, Boris Johnson, that is, had a great friendship. Yeah, Nigel Farage is a friend of mine. Boris is a friend of mine. I mean, there's a difference there, is it, do you think? I mean, are they friends in the same way as you are with him? I mean, Boris was very, very... Boris was very rude about him in 2016. You know, he said, I wouldn't go to New York at the moment in case I bumped into Donald Trump. But then Boris is great at playing the PC game. But, but look, Boris turns on a sixpence on all sorts of things. All I can say is that Trump liked Boris's energy. He liked Boris's optimism. He absolutely wanted Boris to win the leadership. I think many in the administration were shocked that given the Conservative Party had the ability to get rid of Mrs May, which they had in December 2018, that they didn't have the nerve to exercise it. Remarkable. They couldn't get enough signatures to force a ballot. If they'd forced a ballot, she'd have been gone. Yeah, they didn't have the nerve to do it. So I think he was a bit, a bit surprised the Tory party didn't deal with the problem earlier, given that it could have done. But once the European elections were out of the way, May had gone. Yeah, he was all in for Boris winning. Because he saw in, in Boris this kind of politician, like yourself maybe, who can reach parts of the, of the electorate who aren't yeah. normally touched by politics. Yeah, and, 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 and I think he thought, I think at the time uh, Trump thought that... Boris would deliver Brexit because he'd have no choice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he'd absolutely have to deliver Brexit. They couldn't drop the ball again as a Conservative Party and frankly survive. And don't forget, when I saw him in June that year, the Brexit Party was leading the national opinion polls for a general election. <laughs> I mean, that's where we were. Yeah. That is how much trouble the Conservative Party were actually in. And Boris and delivering Brexit were the only way out of it. When you were popping into the, to the White House, were you, yeah. you weren't going to the, into the Oval Office, were you? That first no, moment no, no. happened in was, January no, no. this I year. Have been, I have been to the Oval Office. I have been there. When he's there? <laughs> I've been and sat opposite him at the desk, yeah. To be honest with you, Chris, most times I've met him or spoken to him, you in the UK press don't know about it because I haven't made an issue of it. He's popped in. I haven't talked about it very much. And that's interesting, isn't it? And again, it's because I want to be a trusted sounding board, rather than him thinking every time he rings me, it's going to be on the front page. Without saying what he told you in the meetings, what's on his desk? There's no computer there, is there? There are phones. Jotting pads. There are phones on his desk. There are papers on his desk. Um, there was, when I was there um, in February, a 50p coin celebrating Brexit, one of the officials. Oh, yeah, no, I gave him, but the one I, the one I had, I gave to him as a present. So that was there. Yeah, that was my idea, don't you? Was it? Yeah. Well, well done, you. It well, happened with Craig McKinley. Yeah, because it the only happened. way the state hasn't yet marked Brexit in any in any meaningful way, we haven't got any stamps yet for a start. No. Well, we got the coins. Got the coins. And I was pleased to have my one, my, my my sort of first issue. But so that was on the desk. You know, you all think it's so funny. Oh, he's not surrounded by computers. He doesn't work like that. He works with people. There's a never-ending stream of people coming through the Oval Office, sitting down for conversations about business, about politics. And let me just throw this in very quickly about foreign affairs, because I think this president has done phenomenally well in the field of foreign affairs, unlike all of his predecessors. 
who were all warmongers, all really pleased to get America into long wars and, and have military buildups and, 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 you know, Afghanistan surges and all those things that the Bushes and Clintons... I think warmongers is a bit harsh, Nigel, isn't it? Warmongers is a bit harsh. I mean, it, they were drawn into these conflicts, no, but they, they were weren't people, warmongers. They were people just like our government that went to war at the drop of a hat. I mean, just look at us and Libya in 2012. What the hell was that all about? Well, that was Benghazi, what wasn't was that it? All and, about? A, and a feared massacre in Benghazi. Oh, well, there we are. There's always a reason, isn't there? There's always a reason to destabilise completely the region. But, oh, and, but he and, has been very muscular on a foreign door. He has so, tried to fix problems. He's met with so he, North Korean he's leaders. He's not a warmonger, right? And the use of, America, of the American military has been very much more limited in his term of office, as he promised it would be. I think North Korea, the attempt to form a relationship, the crossing the line, I mean, they're very, very dramatic things. I mean, had it not been Donald Trump doing that, had it been Obama, we'd be told it was the second coming of the Lord. But I also think significantly, they've been battling away hard in the Middle East right from the beginning of this. And of course, Jared Kushner has, has played quite a big role in all of this, his son-in-law. But actually, I think the accord that has taken place in the last few weeks between the UAE and Israel is a significant huge. step forward. Others are falling blind now. Are now others are now following. I also think that his stance on Iran is 100% right and ours 100% wrong. Well, it's, ours is fraying, isn't it? This well, international ours is, of course, we, we were dragged into it because it was a European policy. European foreign policy. And we got dragged in its wake... And we're now facing a decision with all of this. Are we going to go on supporting European foreign policy or make up our own minds? Now, making up our own minds means there'll be times when we do support America, but equally, there'll be times when we don't agree with America. I'm not advocating swapping slavish devotion to the European project and replacing that with Washington. But I do think in terms of defining the Middle East, trying to move things forward, I think the Trump administration has made massive progress. I'm astonished that Dominic Raab and our foreign office don't give them greater credit for what they've done. So I think as president, he's kept his promises. As president, I think some of the supply side reforms that have taken place, particularly in states that have got Republican governors have been impressive. And I think in economic terms, what America's done has been great. I think in foreign policy terms, she's in a much better place than she was after eight years of Obama. So overall, whether you like the style or not, I think he's done pretty well. In the earlier episode of this series of podcasts, you talked about how the Republican Party didn't really accept Trump in 2016. Mm. Do you think it has now accepted Trump? I mean, watching that convention we talked about mm. on the steps of the White House and the, the family pushed to the front, of the, is it now the Trump Party, not the Republican Party? No. You're quite right about the Trump family, the Trump team. You vote for Trump, you're buying a job lot. You're getting the whole crew. That's the way he works. That's the way that it is. I'll tell you what's really interesting. I remember in December 16, being at a private event that he was at, a small private event that he was at, and it was really interesting. Despite he uses the words spoken by things, Joseph Stalin to describe people his people like enemies. Senator Jeff Flake from out west people and Senator Adams, the President of the United States, uh, Romney. He's a Republican. These are all Republicans. Had said about him. 
you know, not I disagree with Boris's strategy on Brexit, but I loathe the guy. He's awful. And it was what was really interesting, Chris, was despite all the things that have been said about him by people in the Republican Party, his emphasis that December was on bringing unity to the Republican Party. And he talked about it and he meant it. And I was a bit surprised because I thought that the businessman who you cross never, ever, ever, ever speaks to you again. Because <laughs> that's dead how, to me. Because in business, that's how it is. And yet he realised that in politics, it just could not work that way. Just couldn't work that way. And I think the extent to which he's brought the Republican Party round to his way of thinking is amazing. I was very privileged earlier this year, just before lockdown came, and I was very privileged to be asked to speak to the Republican Senators Association at, at their retreat. Uh, it's a great honour. Where's, where's that? It, it's, it's a private building, privately owned building within DC, and they go for a day or two's retreat where it's just them, no press, you know, and, 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 and where they talk about strategy, policy, where things are going. Quite a good idea, actually, to do things like that. Uh, used to do away days, didn't they, here? They did. Amongst uh, they Tory did. MPs. But they always turned into a farce. <laughs> well, it was the jumpers, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it, it was yeah. dressed down conservatives, always a bad look. It never worked. But, you know, so there I was, and most of the Republican senators were in the room. One or two weren't. People like Pence were quite busy elsewhere. Um, but what was interesting was to see just how united the vast majority of them were behind his leadership. And I think that's reflected in the Republican Party activist base in the country. And I think even if Trump was to lose, the thought that the Republican Party is going back to the sort of Mitch McConnell style of republicanism, I don't think it's going to happen. I think Trump has changed the Republican Party. If he wins, there's four more years of it. Yeah. If he doesn't win, somebody will replace him. And, and the agenda will be in that direction. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. On that note, Nudge of ours, thank you. Thank you. That's episode two of the Trump Card. Subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss the third and final episode. To say thank you for supporting our journalism, Telegraph subscribers can listen to it four days early from this Friday, the 9th of October, at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump Card. Now, if you're not already a subscriber, please sign up at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Trump Podcast to get your first month completely free of charge and early access to the podcast, of course. In the next episode, Nigel Farrell will be talking to us about next month's US election, revealing what the president's likely to play as his Trump card. Plus, he'll be weighing in on what lies ahead if things don't go Trump's way. I don't think Trump will go and play golf. He's pretty addicted to striving. He can't help it. The drug for Trump is it's not alcohol, it's success. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this show. This episode was produced by Theo Luludis. The music and sound design was by Tom Pink and researched by Elliot Daly. Thank you for listening. Listening.